CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to this very special Twitter Spaces event. Uh, This is one that we're just doing as a one-off here. Obviously, we've had quite a bit of news in the crypto space in the last couple of days. And uh, you know, Coindesk has been in the middle of this for reasons that I think everybody knows. So we want to like really dive into a little bit about what it all means, also a little bit about our own coverage of this. Um, it's been, you know, quite a fall from grace in the crypto industry, almost in any industry, I would say. Um, you, you rarely see something unravel as quickly as we've seen FTX, one of the biggest and most high-profile com- companies in this space. Um, for those of you who aren't up to speed, um, there's probably not many of you, but here's a quick recap. Uh, The event that sparked the collapse of FTX was, in fact, a Coindesk story last Wednesday on the makeup of the balance sheet of Alameda Research, a hedge fund closely associated with FTX, which raised serious questions about FTX's solvency. That sparked an online feud between FTX CEO Sam Bankman-Fried and Changpeng Zhao, better known as CZ, the CEO of Binance, the biggest exchange in the crypto world, after the latter revealed that his exchange was dumping its holdings of FTX's self-issued token FTT. Uh, that only sparked bigger concerns about FTX, spurring customers to remove more than $400 million from the exchange, according to data from Nansen. All of this, of course, then led to you know the the uh, this this current offer, at least this an agreement that sort of seems to be loosely in place at the stage between finance itself to purchase FTX. Look, Coindesk played a, a critical role in this. We have uh, amongst the people that we're about to introduce to discuss this, Ian Allison, who broke the story last Wednesday of that balance sheet. Um, so I just want to just put this out there because, you know, journalists don't like to necessarily be the story. We like to cover the story. But of course, you know, inevitably in this space, you know, there's all sorts of speculation about our role in it and how we handled it, et cetera, et cetera. And, and we'll get into some of that as best we can. Uh, what I do want to remind people of just how very, very important independent journalism is and how important it is that transparency is brought to bear on every aspect of the crypto industry. We maintain that Coindesk exists and has a vital role, as do other uh, crypto media organizations in this space, precisely because there is a lack of transparency. And the more that we can bring sunlight to bear on all of this, uh, the better it is for everybody. It's painful to see such fallout. And of course, people have lost money in this. But ultimately, if, if the best practices, the most transparent ways of dealing with assets um, is what comes out of it, we, we do believe, as do many others, that this is how this industry and, and how broadly the public's interest in it um, is served 
best. Um, so we're going to get into all that. Uh, I just want to do a, a quick promo as well, just because it's part of my role. Uh, Coindesk, as you, many of you would know, has a, uh, a tremendous uh, a conference every year called Consensus, and it's coming out again in April in Austin next year, April 26th, 28th. And for listeners of this event, there is a discount code. We're using the term TRUTH15 just to play on the transparency prospect. That's the code. You can actually get a discount on Consensus tickets with that. Anyway, without further ado, to explore everything that's happened to consider what it all might mean for the industry going forward. I'm joined by the reporter himself who had the initial scoop, Ian Allison, um, as also by Nicholas Day, Coindesk's Managing Editor for Policy and Regulation, uh, Brad Cowan, our Managing Editor for Markets, and by Tracy Wong, Deputy Business Editor. Thanks all for joining. Can you just go and unmute yourselves now? Thank you so much. Thanks, thanks, Michael. Thanks, thanks all of you. I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm you know, honoured to... I, you know, I just I had a couple of things sort of to say uh, to start with based on stuff that was well probably not that importantly first of all I'd just like to say I, I interviewed Sam Bankman Freed back in 2018 at Consensus you know at Coindesk Conference and he was a, just struck me as a extremely nice chap and decent and, and took loads of time to explain stuff to me and I, you know I just want to say that I don't relish you know, I'm not trying to take I wasn't trying to take anyone down or anything like that and I, I actually feel you know sorry uh in a lot of ways, so just say that first. Second, and more importantly, um, we we did, we did get quite a lot of people saying, you know, you, well, you published this balance sheet, and my editor, who's a you know consummate professional, 15 years at Bloomberg, Nick Geckle Nick Baker, agonised over this, and uh, we we we. But the the fact is, we told the person that shared it with us that we wouldn't do that. So that is for everyone why we didn't do that. We honoured. That uh, and and lastly, and I think like most importantly, uh, this I want to say on the record for everyone: this did not come from Binance. This 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 balance sheet did not come to us via Binance. Uh, so I just wanted to, to say all that to start with. Thanks, uh, Michael. Yeah, that's great. I'm glad we got that out of the way, Ian. It's important to to do so. Uh, why don't you just break down a little bit about what you discovered, right? And, and why, you know, you realized that you had uh, a big story on your hands um, when, when, you, when you sort of dug into the balance sheet and, and looked at these, particularly the FTT holdings. Hi. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, well, I mean, I can sort of just, in terms of sort of con- context, I, uh, la- last month I was at a conference like this down London, wasn't as noisy as this. And, and I did a, a call, I did a chat with a, a guy uh, that, that I know is private, and he has some dealings with Alameda, he's a, you know, he deals with, and he, he said to me, uh, you know, kind of off the record, just in chat, it's a lot weaker than people perceive that balance sheet, uh, it, it, it actually is. Uh, they, they, they did have an absolute ton of money, uh, like last year, and, and now it's, 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 it's considerably smaller. And, uh, you know, uh, it was following that that I uh, did a call with another chap when I got home, and uh, we we were we were just talking about it uh, that that, and uh, he 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 just dropped into the chat. He dropped into the chat the document and said, "Look, uh, here's here's really something more recent that you can have a look at, and um, and all the rest of it." And um, yeah, I, I mean, at the time I thought, well, you know, this is this is a scoop. This is probably something that's worth worth uh, publishing and so on and uh, yeah that's how that that's how that kind of happened you know um. and, and for anybody who doesn't maybe grasp why it was significant maybe talk through what the relevance of all of the the, the FTT holdings on Alameda's balance sheet what, why was that a significant detail I, I well you know we um, 
I spoke to a few people as well, and we were we were we were looking at this and saying to ourselves, there's an awful lot of what is an, you know essentially an exchange token on this on this balance sheet. Uh, you know, we 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 also have heard that it was being used as as collateral by by sort of Alameda, you know, to borrow uh, other cryptocurrencies and stuff. Like and and you know, it was. And the way that some people portrayed this, that, that they were sort of, we, we discussed it with them, they said, look, it, it's this story that already exists, that Alameda has this uncomfortably close tie to, you know, FTX. This is like more of that. It's, this is even more uh, highlighting that, that, that fact that, uh, you know, that Alameda was one of the main market makers on FTX and, you know, this would never happen in TradFi. You know, it shouldn't really happen anywhere. But, 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 but that story, which was very well covered by, by Bloomberg, right? I think people were of the opinion that this is really taking this to the next sort of level. This is uh, another, you know, part two of, of that sort of thing. That's kind of how it was uh, spelled out to us. Yeah, I, I want to dig into it later maybe with, you know, with Tracy and some others about like, you know, really the significance of what these exchange tokens and this sort of <laughs> circularity almost of that relationship and what, what that, why that's important. But before we do, Ian, I mean, and maybe, you know, because it's, uh, it's noisy, we can let you go in a moment. But um just, just tell us. Like, did you did you expect? I mean, did you realize how much of a of a bombshell story you were, you were sitting on? Did you anticipate this kind of fallout? No, no, no. I mean, I, I mean, I can sort of vaguely remember when uh, you know the the editor had published, and I think I was like just making some sort of lasagna or something. I was just like, oh, there, that's, that's fair enough. And I know I did, you know, I didn't. And and you know, as I said at the start, I mean, just I'm just. We, you know, I'm just doing my job. I really, uh, yeah. it's not my intention to hurt, hurt anyone, uh, Sam or indeed any of his customers. So, you know, just but yeah, we, we I was quite astonished. Yeah, I don't think any, any of us had any sense that this would go. And then when the you know the CZ battle just made it interesting, but like it just it really was. And, and it's remarkable, um, how fast these things can move. Um, it really speaks to. Um, you know, the kind of environment we live in, we live in a very fast moving capital market environment and obviously suddenly opinions and ideas about uh, the solvency or, or, or strength of a particular asset can, can change so, so rapidly. Um, Ian, I'll ask you to go on mute for now if you can sure, so I can sure. like bring some others in. All right. Uh, Tracy, yeah, like just... So people talk about these almost like phantom asset concept about the, the you know, without put, placing judgment on it. And I don't think anybody's suggesting that there's anything, anything untoward about what they were doing uh, or, or illegal, but certainly creating this sort of like, this is circularity to the idea that the asset that the sister company is holding uh, is that of the other company. And that just creates this sort of really potentially fragile environment. Can you talk to a little bit about why that mattered and, you know, what, you know, what what really is the essence of the problem here? Yeah, um, the issue with the FTT tokens that we reported with Alameda's balance sheet is that, you know, FTT is a highly illiquid token. It doesn't, you know, trade trade. It, it's not, you know, if you wanted to sell a bunch of FTT, you would likely just kind of move the market, and you know, the price of FTT would kind of just plummet. And that's really an issue if you look at Alameda's balance sheet and we saw that they had, you know, as of June 30th, $7.4 billion worth of loans. Um, unfortunately, we don't know the breakdown of those loans and who the creditors are, but it was clear from the assets on their balance sheet 
that they held a bunch of FTT and other um, Solana and Solana ecosystem tokens that just weren't really liquid. And to, to, you know, to what you say, Michael, about these, the idea of phantom assets, this actually is something that um, had to do with crypto tokenomics. So what normally happens is when a token is created, there is something um, like, you know, the team project gets a portion, a bunch go to investors, like venture capitalists, and a, a par portion is kind of just sold to retail investors. And um, there are, if you look on any type of crypto, you know, data website like CoinMarketCap or um, CoinGecko, you'll actually see two market caps. And so one market cap is called the circulating market cap, and that is kind of the number of the tokens in circulation. And then there's another figure called the fully diluted market cap. And so what happens when, you know, a token gets launched is that a large portion of these tokens are locked up, which means they're completely illiquid. They have vet these vesting schedules such that, you know, every three, six, nine months, one year, they kind of unlock and then they can be able to be sold onto, um, you know, the market. So, so think of it as, as a little bit like how, you know, it's, it's kind of like token printing, essentially. And so when Alameda holds a bunch of these highly liquid tokens, a large portion of which are unlocked, um, that essentially just shows kind of how illiquid their balance sheet is. And so if they, you know, when, when sometimes they use these tokens as collateral for loans, but if they were to default, the creditor, you know, would likely not be able to recoup the full value of that collateral. So I think it kind of just shows that like Alameda's balance sheet was, was kind of highly levered. Right. And speaking of the balance sheet, I mean, there are some critique or at least questions raised. Okay. Are we, did this, did we capture the full story that this was maybe just a partial balance sheet um, and that there's another side to this that, that, that was not reflected in this, um, but that we were, we were pretty confident this was a, a very strong reflection of the, the deal of that uh, interrelationship, right? What was, I mean, what were some of the signs that led us to, to that conclusion? You know, um, as we mentioned in the start, we did reach out to FTX and Alameda for comment, and um, they declined to comment. And uh, what they were able to kind of uh, privately tell us is that, you know, it is possible that this balance sheet just, you know, uh, is a portion of the picture. Alameda has multiple entities, like they have a venture arm, they have a trading arm. Um, it's pretty common for all hedge funds and trading firms to kind of be broken up into multiple entities. But um, actually, the balance sheet that we uh, viewed um, is labeled as consolidated balance sheet as of June 30th. And consolidated typically means that, you know, it kind of aggregates all the entities together. Um, although we did acknowledge that, you know, it is possible that they have other assets or, or that, you know, you know, the balance sheet was just, uh, I mean, we didn't really know anything about their accounting practices at all. And so it is a possibility that there are more assets out there. But um, we saw that um, uh, Caroline Ellison, the CEO of Alameda, tweeted in response. This was several days, actually, after the article came out that, you know, Alameda had $10 billion worth of assets not reflected on the balance sheet that we viewed. Um, what's unclear from Caroline's comment is, you know, the liquidity profile of those 10 billion in assets, and if they have actually any liabilities to offset those assets. Um, so, so those are still questions that, you know, we, we don't really, the Alameda hasn't really responded to. And I would like 
to point out just that, you know, if they really did have 10 billion and, and these assets were liquid, um, it seems like that, you know, those assets could certainly be, be very useful at a time like at a time like now. Yeah, indeed. Um, you know, is there another shooter job? Let's, 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 move, let's push this conversation a bit forward now because, you know, there's the other side of it, of course, is, um, you know, $8 billion in liabilities, I think, is, is, the, is, is the number that was applied to the other side of the balance sheet there. Obviously, we don't know who those creditors are. Um, we've seen sort of clearly with prior moments in this uh, rather ugly crypto winter where, you know, big players in this space, um, there's been exposure to that. We've had fallout across the industry. Um, you know, what could happen? I mean, is there, what, what do we know? What don't we know? What's, what's, what are the, what's the conversation around um, exposure to Alameda at this point? Oh man, uh, this is a loaded question. Just not just for Alameda and FTX, but also just the entire crypto ecosystem. It's it's just shocking how FTX, uh, or what I like to call the FTX Alameda industrial complex, has just <laughs> touched every facet of crypto, from regulation to you know layer ones to venture. It's just, um, yeah, yeah. We'll we'll be able to see in the coming months how. Uh, how, you know, the crypto community and markets react. Um, but specifically with Alameda, you know, uh, it is important to note that, you know, our, our balance sheet is of June 30th and um, kind of five, almost five months have passed since then. But we can clearly tell from their balance sheet that they held a lot of Solana ecosystem tokens and unlocked Solana. In fact, if I did some quick mental math, um, they held approximately a third of all of the unlocked Solana tokens as of June 30th. Um, we are seeing that in the markets right now with the price of Solana kind of tanking. Um, I think the Solana ecosystem out of all of the layer ones are, are the worst hit from, from the outcomes of this event. Um, you know, also it's important to mention with, you know, taking a step back, uh, the rumored figure is that there is around a $6 billion hole um, in, for, for FTX. And, uh, you know, this is why CZ kind of stepped in and said, preliminarily, he, he might bail them out. Um, but anytime you have a hole of that magnitude, and that's just for FTX, we don't know the current situation with Alameda. Anytime you have a $6 billion hole, just kind of go poof, the money goes poof, there's going to be, you know, shoes that drop. Um, we know that any projects, very like any venture investments that Alameda and FTX Ventures invested in, you know, usually VCs, they kind of, you know, write a check, um, you know, they, they sign a commitment with a project and they write checks in series of installments. It can probably be expected that any of the projects that they backed won't be receiving follow-up checks from FTX or Alameda. Um, the Solana ecosystem, I think basically any of the assets that they hold, they're, they're likely going to be experiencing a lot of sell pressure. Yeah. Okay. Brad, why don't I bring you in here since, you know, you have the, from your perch, you know, as markets editor, you know, they're looking at this broad fallout. Like what has it meant for Bitcoin and, and for, you know, all, all the broader assets in this, the broad, you know, the whole crypto asset class, um, you know, is this one of those systemic risk or, or everybody gets to, to slide with it? What, what, what's happening out there? Well, yeah. Um, I thought uh, Tracy did a great job of, of uh, discussing, uh, you know, initially this was just in the markets uh, focused on the, this FTT token and uh, we saw a drop in that. And 
um, that was sort of, you know, a sign of distress. But initially, Bitcoin um, and Ether really were holding up pretty strong. Uh, you know, Bitcoin's been trading at whatever, 20K, 21K for the past, you know, month or so. And uh, and it, there wasn't a lot of movement. But um, yeah, yesterday, you know, as things got a lot worse, <laughs> And, you know, it became clear just how, how dire the situation was at FTX. And there was a, you know, appeared to be a deposit run in FTX. And, you know, I mean, it was just a classic scramble for liquidity, you know, uh, people just getting out of whatever they could. And, you know, so and we're seeing that again today. Um, I mean, Ian scooped just out about you know, Binance might be reconsidering um you know, the deal uh, after having a quick <sighs> early look at um at FTX's books, uh, and we're seeing a fresh dive in Bitcoin down below uh, 17k now for the first time since November of 2020. Uh, we just put that story out, and so yeah, I mean we're now seeing the broader contagion to crypto markets. Um, uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Jocelyn Young, reported on Monday that uh, Sol. Uh, the Solana token was another one that was kind of might be in the eye of the storm just because that was, kind of, you know, another, as Tracy put it, you know, in some ways affiliated with the FTX industrial complex, the Sam Bankman Fried industrial complex. And um, and that one was, you know, getting hit a little bit on Monday. And the theory is just, you know, if Alameda needs to dump a lot of the stuff that, you know, to get liquidity, then that might be, you know, it's going to dump the stuff that's liquid, you know, as as firms do when they get in these situations. And so uh, and sure enough, Seoul has really gotten hit hard uh, the past couple of days. So, I mean, to some to answer your question, Michael, yeah, we really are seeing uh, signs of broader market contagion now. Yeah, just to be clear, you know, Bitcoin down 15% of the day, 17,106, not not happy. Uh, ETH, 24%, 1,165. So clearly a very difficult time. And yes, let's just, Ian, if you're still with us, the latest uh, story that you've had, um, you know, talk us through a little bit about this. I mean, you know, we had the big news of the, uh, you know, the letter of intent, at least yesterday, but already one day later, it looks like, you know, this might not go ahead. Binance strongly leaning towards scrapping uh, the rescue. Um, what, what, what can you update uh, listeners on? Oh, hi there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, was speaking to someone this morning, uh, you know, very close to uh, this, this, this uh, deal, this proposed deal. And yeah, they were, uh, I mean, they stopped short of saying this is not, this is, this is backing out and it's 100% not going to happen. But I, I think that was, they, they were pretty much adamant that it, that it wasn't. And I mean, uh, there's some other bad stuff coming, uh, according to some, some of these, some of these people I was, I was speaking to. And it, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. That, 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 shoes shoe, shoe, are dropping. Yeah. I mean, let's just, yeah, it, it is, and I think Tracy said it well, that what, if you have a hole as big as this, there is always going to be fallout. All right, I've muted him. Um, Brad, back to you. Um, you know, just with that, giving people the context now, this development, this was just really just coming to light as we were coming out with Twitter spaces, so you're getting this live, folks. Um, just um, 
what does this all do for the mood? I mean, just, I mean, clearly we know that retail investors have pulled out. Um, you know, we've been reporting for some time that even as crypto winter took hold, though, there was still this sort of strategic investments that sees coming in and, and TradFi companies like, like gearing up through winter to maybe play a role in this space, various announcements, uh, BlackRock and Coinbase and so forth. Does this like put, I mean, it does put a damper, obviously, on the mood. But does it change the trajectory of, of, of investment in crypto broadly? I would say it's going to have to. Yeah, I mean, I, we were just, you know, we, we, t- we often look at the it's the alternative dot crypto fear and greed index. You know, it's like a, a, a dial basically on a website and it sort of tells you what the mood's like in crypto. It's currently pointing to fear. And I was actually surprised by that because I would think right now it's what we're seeing in the markets really looks like extreme fear. You know, uh, I mean, we, you know, again, we were trading in this sideways sideways regime of the markets. We were starting to see some altcoins going up. I mean, you know, with Ethereum, people talking about the ultrasound money narrative and either becoming, you know, harder money, you know, post merge and. Uh, and then all of a sudden, this comes out of nowhere, and you know we're da- we're back on Bitcoin down below 17k all of a sudden, and you know, and now people are speculating: is there another shoot to drop, or do we need to? You know, there's a lot of chatter on Twitter: do we need to go down to 13,000 where we're going to take out Michael Michael Saylor, <laughs> where he's going to have to capitulate? So yeah, I think this definitely you know pushes. I mean, who knows in crazy crypto, but. I would think, you know, to you know, as as Tracy said, there's a big hole here. There's going to be a lot of fallout, just like it took us, you know, a while to get through all that pain from Three Arrows Capital and Celsius and, you know, Voyager, all that stuff. It took a while to really kind of, you know, chew through mm. all that. And so I would guess, you know, we're going to see another round of kind of chewing through the pain here. And what does it say about these, you know, exchange-issued tokens, right? Clearly, we see the problems with FTT. Um, you know, the feeling is that Binance's own token is is, is different. They, you know, CZ was very, very clear, it seems, yesterday in a tweet pointing out that it had not been used as collateral and it wasn't sort of backing up the the, uh, the balance sheets of other related companies or anything like that. But, you know, th- there's there's this feeling that these tokens are, you know, printing money, creating this sort of false illusionary currency for the sake of, you know, beefing up impressions of value and so forth. I imagine that 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 class of asset isn't looking too too good at the moment. Well, you know, (laughs) we actually reported yesterday BNB token, uh, which is a little bit of a different animal in some ways, because it's also used, uh, you know, as kind of a, a DeFi smart contract asset and Binance smart chain. But, it, you know, it was originally the Binance uh, exchange token. It's kind of their ecosystem token. And it's, it's one of the biggest overall. Uh, that one actually got a pretty nice little pop yesterday after this deal was announced yesterday, although it, it subsequently sold off from along with kind of the broader market. But, yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, what are these exchange tokens ultimately? You know, I mean, one thing that that is definitely a takeaway from what we've seen this week is, you know, they're not equity. You know, uh, they might actually trade alongside or parallel to equity and correlated with equity, you know, equity. But all these exchanges are private companies except for like Coinbase. So, you know, there's no public equity price to point at. And so in some ways, these these exchange tokens do kind of trade sometimes like, 
um, like equity, but they're not equity. You know, they don't give you, you don't have equity in anything. It's really just a function of supply and demand. I mean, they're, they're just like tokens in an arcade in some ways, you know, they give you discounts and you can buy five, you know, for a dollar <laughs> instead of four quarters, you know, um, mm. but you know, that's, that is uh, ultimately what they are. And, but they, you know, they, they trade on supply and demand for the tokens, which is like expectations of how well the, you know, how much activity there's going to be in that exchange. And so, um, yeah, but, you mm. know, I guess if they're not widely distributed, widely held, you know, they could be super illiquid. Yeah, I want to get to, I want to get Nick in in a moment and maybe talk about some of the regulatory aspects of this because again, this idea of them not being equity says something about you know uh, ha, ha, them not being regulated as, as equity. But on top of that, I think there's real concerns. Again, this is not to suggest any of this was happening, but um, that 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 in all of crypto, for that matter, there's the capacity for wash trading because of the the capacity to obfuscate uh, trading between sort of connected entities, and so I imagine. That's the sort of thing that could be a problem or perceived to be a problem around these things. So anyway, we'll get Nick in a moment to talk about that. But just before we do, Tracy, just one more question for you. And that is, um, you know, people have, this, of course, uh, is, is in both of these companies, Binance and um, FTX can be described as CFI. They are centralized entities. Um, and, uh, you know, at least sort of the main part of their exchanges have this custodial relationship. And uh, folks during the crypto uh, winter have been pointing out that perhaps with the exception of, of Luna, which is a, a big one, um, you know, most of the problems have actually been with these centralized um, finance entities, that that, in fact, is the problem, that there's a lack of regulation of those entities and perhaps decentralized exchanges are the way forward um, uh, where, you know, they've, some of them have actually held up remarkably well, despite all this, to, the, not to say that there aren't all sorts of other problems in DeFi, but what do you think does this all this does for that C5 versus D5 debate? Are DEXs, you know, decentralized exchanges actually safer? Uh, that's a great question, Michael. And before I answer that, because I have a lot of thoughts on that, um, wanted to add one more point about the FTT token. Um, sure. One of the things about the FTT token that's significant is that, you know, kind of the sell-off all started when CZ tweeted that he was dumping $580 million worth of FTT tokens that he received um, when Binance bought out, uh, sorry, when FTX bought out Binance's equity stake in the, in, in the company. And so, you know, it, it tells you one thing, it, it shows that kind of FTX at the time, they probably had the option to do an all cash deal, but instead they offered Binance, you know, these this large chunk of FTT tokens as part of the deal. It's kind of when, you know, when a company does a purchase in stock instead of cash, not that I'm comparing these tokens to stocks. Um, and, and that really, I think, ended up biting him in the butt because it gave CZ a kind of, you know, a card that he can kind of pull out of his back pocket. It's, it's unclear if CZ knew that, you know, him announcing that he would be selling all of this FTT would unleash the chaos that we are seeing today. But clearly, um, that was that was in hindsight kind of a very critical decision that happened. Uh, a, a kind of a critical um, decision that FTX made back in 2021 um, that we're seeing play out now. The other thing I wanted to mention about FTT is that it's it's. Um, it has this unique characteristic where FTX says that every single week they will do something called a buyback or a burn. And basically they will 
buy back on FTX in the open market um, the equivalent nominal value of 33% of their trading fees. So let's say that week they, you know, made $30 million in trading fees. They are going to go on FTX and buy back $10 million worth of FTT tokens. And I, I don't think Binance does this, but I could be mistaken. But but that is a specific feature of FTX. And, and Sam tweets about the burn every single week that makes FTT kind of unique and probably will open it to regulatory scrutiny when all of this um, is over. But although, you know, I, I don't know that for sure. And Nick probably has some comments on that. But basically, you know, it, it sounds like the revenues of FTX will somehow flow back to the token in the form of just this buyback, you know, it's kind of like deflationary in that sense. And so it'll be interesting to see in the future how that, um, how that uh, kind of pans out once regulators kind of look at FTT. And I think FTT might be a, you know, might be like a magnet for, for, for scrutiny, um, just given the, the price action and kind of what they do with the weekly burn. Um, but then Michael, to your question about just DeFi versus CeFi, I think in this particular FTX scenario, it makes it a little bit different than Luna and Three Arrows Capital in that, you know, when Three Arrows Capital blew up, it was kind of a hedge fund. And we know that hedge funds take risks and they kind of overlevered themselves. The market went down and then they kind of blew up. And and Luna was the stablecoin DeFi protocol that just like you know, things went awry, the stablecoin depegged, and basically the assumptions in which they you know, thought this mechanism would work, ended up not working out. Um, FTX is a little bit different in that it is a exchange which has some type of duty to like protect customers' deposits. You know, what's, what's interesting about this insolvency crisis is that, what's interesting is that if customers all withdrew their deposits and there was kind of a run on the bank, these assets should have been custodied properly and people should have just been able to withdraw all their tokens and FTX would have just you know, paid out all their customers and everything would have been fine. But the fact that there is a $6 billion hole, um, and I think the question now is like, where did those funds go? And what did FTX do with those funds? Um, speculation is, you know, maybe they gave them to Alameda and Alameda, we don't know what they did with them. And so I think this kind of dealing, cross-dealing between FTX and Alameda, which, which, is speculation at this point, um, really is troubling. And I think if you look at Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong's comments, I think he tweeted about the FTX scenario yesterday. Um, he said something, let me just pull up the tweet. Yeah, he said, quote, you know, this event appears to be the result of risky business practices, including conflicts of interest between deeply intertwined entities and misuse of customer funds, parentheses, lending user assets, and parentheses. Now, I don't want to speculate on what Brian Armstrong is saying, but it seems to me like wink, wink, nudge, nudge. He is implying that there was some type of, you know, risky practice where FTX essentially lent out user assets to one of their deeply intertwined entities, wink, wink, Alameda. Now, um, that is how I personally interpret that statement. And if that was really the case, I think, you know, it just, 
it just shows that FTX, you know, it's, it's unclear also if, if they had the right to do that. Um, but it kind of shows that, you know, there was this under the table cross dealing going on between the two entities. Yeah, look, until stories come to light and we know what's going on, let's just like, you know, we're just going to sort of leave it out there. But um, I think to the broader point, let's quickly get Nick in because I do want to get audience questions in, but just really quickly, Nick, so that we can do that. Just just sum up what you think this all means for, for, for the regulation, specifically for the regulation of these sorts of exchanges and, you know, how might, you know, the appropriate regulatory framework have protected people here? Hey, good morning. Yeah, that's a... Definitely, I think, a top-of-mind question for a lot of lawmakers. Um, yeah, I think there's really, you know, there's two different questions. One being, is there a regulatory framework that could have prevented this? And then two, what would it take to actually, you know, implement and enforce it? So the big thing around the first one is FTX.com is not a U.S.-based company, right? It's a Bahamas-based company. I believe it's registered there. Uh, they had a separate branch ftx.us which operate in the us so you know where exactly would be the jurisdiction to uh you know oversee the regulatory framework and then b would that have protected consumers and yeah we saw comments from a couple lawmakers yesterday representative patrick McHenry in the house financial services committee senator cynthia lummis who is a member of the senate banking committee yeah both of them were saying yes we do need clear, strong, uh, you know, regulatory clarity, uh, guidance for companies to abide by. Um, I, I think it's going to probably become a major talking point because in addition to being a big company, SBF was of course a also, you know, a major lobbyist, a major donor uh, to political campaigns. And there's definitely going to be a lot of scrutiny around what he was doing and what he was advocating for and whether or not that makes sense going forward in light of, you know, yesterday's revelations. Okay, great. Loads to, to unpack here. We've just we've cut a lot of, covered a lot of ground. I do want to open this up to audience here. Um, we're uh, uh, blessed to have Laura Shin in the audience I see here. Laura, I don't know if you're free to chat, if you'd like to, sent you a speaker request. Yes. If you want to jump in and ask a question, I'd go for it. Oh, um, well. Or a comment, whatever <laughs> you'd like to say. Um, yeah, I mean, I think so as, as, cause you had sent me the request while Nick was speaking and I was like, oh no, I missed it. So I didn't catch the okay. very end of Nick's comments, but, um, that's what I was wondering is like, um, essentially I'm not sure exactly kind of, you know, what the jurisdiction would be. Is it going to be the Bahamas? Does anybody know like what the laws are there in terms of, you know, whether or not, um, you know, lending out customer funds is legal or not. Um, just, yeah, I don't know if anybody's kind of drilled down into those specifics and knows basically like which jurisdiction will apply. And if so, then what are the laws there that might, um, you know, uh, come to bear in this matter? Yeah, no, I, I think that's going to be a really, we're going to see a lot of focus on that question in the coming days, I suspect. Uh, one of the, you know, one aspect is to what extent are, uh, you know, does FTX.com have a U.S. Uh, you know, entanglement? Uh, is it sharing any funds or anything with FTX.us? Do they have any U.S. customers, uh, you know, even despite the fact that FTX.us is supposed to, you know, handle all U.S. customers? I mean, you know, some of the investors in FTX.com, I think, are based in the U.S. So uh, if they want to, 
sue or anything, they probably would have some kind of jurisdiction to try and go after FTX on a legal basis. Yeah, and um, actually one other similar question that I had, um, this came up yesterday when like we recorded kind of like an emergency episode with a chopping block about this whole story. And um, I was saying that like similar to what we saw with BitMEX, that U.S. regulators figured out a way to, um, you know, bring bring U.S. laws to bear in a for, you know, against an offshore exchange. And I wondered, and, and obviously, so this is completely not my area. I'm sure Nick probably has a lot more insight, but um, obviously, so, okay, granted, now at the moment, it looks like maybe Binance will pull out, but like yesterday, it did seem like, oh, you know, if this deal goes through, then it's going to create some kind of behemoth. And I didn't know if that would be something that would catch US regulators' attention, or may- maybe it's just a moot point now, I guess, um, since it looks like Binance might not go through with the deal, but it was just something I was curious about, like, you know, because, so like, I'm, I guess the main question that I'm really wondering is like, because, um, a lot of these entities seem to be sort of like offshore or whatever, like, do you think us regulators really will be like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Hands off over here. Or do you think we're going to see some action from us regulators? Uh, I think there's, and I feel like I keep going back to like rule of twos, but I do think there's like two aspects to that, right? One is the antitrust action, uh, issue, which, um, you know, Coindesk's regulatory team has been looking into. And it does look like there's going to be antitrust interest from U.S. and European regulators for sure, just on, you know, how the deal was announced, how it came together, whether or not, it, you know, the companies involved filed the appropriate paperwork with the various authorities, Um so there will be for sure some kind of antitrust investigation if this deal goes forward, it looks like. Um, so that's one angle to it. And the other is, you know, is there uh, going to be any kind of like national security concern or, uh, you know, anyone who is watching the Twitter deal, not familiar, but has probably seen a little bit about the whole foreign investment committee that you know, the U.S. has where they can try and force foreign investors in companies operating or within the U.S. to sell their shares uh, or otherwise block deals. And, you know, I, I don't know for sure if they would have a role in this right now. I don't even think they would know for sure, but I imagine it's getting reviewed. I imagine they're definitely going to be, you know, paying attention to this question and trying to figure out, okay, like, you know, do we want to allow this company that, you know, for intents and purposes, they said they're not headquartered anywhere. They're, you know, uh, I forget what they say, but they don't have a you know, headquartered or decentralized. Uh, but, you know, none of the uh, major executives are based in the U.S. or live in the U.S. Uh, are they comfortable with that, taking over a company that was founded by a U.S. national that has major U.S. ties, that has major, you know, political and regulatory ties in the U.S.? And I'm guessing it's going to take a little bit of time to review, but... I, there's no way that, you know, that's going to be like an easy, oh, yeah, we're fine with this. Nothing mm-hmm. to be taken a look at. Uh, okay, so I'd like to get somebody else in here. Um, uh, Haska.eth, uh, you, you uh, put in a request to speak early on. Um, if you'd like to ask a question or make a quick comment, just, just be concise if you don't mind. Uh, over to you. Absolutely. Thank you all for bringing me up. Uh, great job on reporting. Just the question I have is, do you think with this allocation of political donations that SBF has given to politicians, do you think that's going to act as an amplifier um, to this story with politicians like paying more attention to this? And as you can see, I have a uh, 
turkey on my head. So I hope this uh, doesn't wreck anyone's uh, Thanksgiving as well. But thank you. <laughs> thanks. I mean, I'm so glad you asked that question because it was one of the ones I had on the on the, the tab to ask Nick about. Given that, like, it's such an interesting connection, the role that that Sam Bankman-Fried has played in in clearly taking positions on policy. So yeah, Nick, your response to that, please. Definitely. I mean, at the very least, the fact that Sam Bankman-Fried was a prolific donor, and even you know some of his colleagues at FTX, uh, Ryan Salam, uh, was a pretty prolific donor as well. Just, just the fact that they were doing that, that they were out there in the primaries donating to various candidates, means that they you know drew a lot of attention to themselves. People knew who they were. Uh, Sam Bankman-Fried, you know, his rise to major prominence arguably was when he made massive donations to the campaign of Joe Biden back in 2020, uh, which led to Biden winning the presidency. Um, so for sure, there's a lot more attention being paid, I think, to the individuals themselves than we might otherwise have seen. Um, the other thing is, I don't know how many of you, you know, closely follow political issues, but a couple of weeks ago, there was this new, there's this article in this uh, relatively new news startup called Puck News. Uh, that said that Joe Biden was leaning towards uh, blessing the Future Forward Super PAC, which is one that you know was supported by Sam Bankman-Fried for the 2024 presidential election cycle. Meaning, you know, it's possible we're in a situation where one of the key people behind uh, a major presidential super PAC just, you know, turned out to have been, uh, you know, playing games with his uh with his and his customers money possibly so i imagine there's gonna be a ton of scrutiny just from you know any lawmaker certainly any major politician who was involved in the election cycle this year but also just anyone who's trying to figure out you know uh what do you do about this major uh, major donor who appears to have lost a massive chunk of his fortune and is you know publicly watching his company collapse yeah, I mean, we always we, people talking about wanting to put crypto on the slate and be be front of mind in terms of legislators and and uh, and Washington's interest generally. And I don't think they necessarily wanted this this kind of scrutiny. Something else they were looking for. But I suppose also just to add a little uh, addendum there, of course, um, uh, Sam Bankman-Fried's apparent support for the um, the DCC. PA, the Digital uh, Commodities Customer Protection Act idea, which some people saw, at least in terms of how it was initially apparently worded, as if it were to be uh, um, pro-CFI, anti-DeFi, to, to oversimplify perhaps. Um, that, that of course, also fed into a lot of this. I don't, I don't want to sort of say much more than that other than there's a lot of interlinking kind of storylines here. Um, why don't we bring back a, a friend of Coindesk here, uh, Nate DiCamillo, who um, has put up his hand to speak, and Nate was formerly a Coindesk reporter and, and is now at, uh, at Quartz. So, uh, Nate, what did you want to ask or say? Over to you. Yeah, thanks, Michael. Um, yeah, I wanted to um, uh, stay on the regulatory train uh, and, and keep asking uh, Nick some questions. Sorry, Nick. Um, but uh, the this is like when I um, talk to lawyers in um, traditional finance, like uh, when things happen like this in the crypto space, um, whether it be like Celsius or now FTX, um, uh, a lot of what this gets compared to is like the shadow banking that happened um, uh, in the 2008 crisis. And the point that often gets brought up is like, and now shadow banks 
they uh, are required to report to the SEC. And of course, like Gensler, uh, the current chair of the SEC, has wanted uh, crypto exchanges to register with the SEC for some time. Um, but I'm I'm curious, Nick, if you have any thoughts as to like beyond just registering with the SEC, what kind of things uh, exchanges ought to report to the SEC in order to make sure that things like this uh, don't happen in the future? Like what what kind of requirements uh, do you think? Uh, lawyers or, or Gensler are interested in? Well, SEC Chair Gary Gensler has been pretty clear, I think. He wants a, well, he really wants crypto exchanges to be treated like national securities exchanges. So all of the existing registration disclosure requirements that, you know, the NYSE or, you know, uh, the NASDAQ stock exchanges have, uh, Gensler wants something similar for crypto exchanges. Um, so a huge part of that would definitely be kind of, you know, SEC's regime is uh, heavily disclosure-based, so having these companies say, okay, you know, here's what's going on with our finances, and here's what's going on with, you know, what we're doing, and, you know, basically telling the public, okay, here's all this information, and do it in what you will. The, you know, crypto exchanges have been kind of reticent, obviously, I think, to agree to this, because first off, they don't want to deal with the, you know, I think the expense and the whole, you know, process of, you know, sorting through that kind of regulatory requirement. Um, they also, for cryptocurrencies in particular, it gets a little weird because, you know, where a company issuing a stock might have, you know, it's very easy to say, okay, well, here's the leadership. Here are, you know, the things, the plans this company has. Here's what they're projecting and all that. Um, if you're treating a crypto as a security, then that gets a lot harder, especially if it's a crypto where you don't have an easily defined leadership. You don't, you know, who's filing a proxy statement, who is telling the public, okay, well, you know, uh, generic coin is going to do X, Y, Z in the coming quarter and we project the returns of, you know, Y percent. Like it gets a little weird, right? Which is one of the concerns or, you know, one of the chief complaints that the crypto industry has had around, uh, you know, Gensler and before him, Jay Clayton. So, you know, it is, a, I think, a complicated question to answer. And then the other part is going back to what we were saying before about, you know, just where exactly the jurisdiction is. Because, again, FTX.com, you know, at least officially had no U.S. ties. So if it's not operating in the U.S., you can't really, you know, put a U.S. framework on it. So this is, you know, now we're starting to get into, like, the financial action task force territory and these other international agencies that are recommending that countries implement a, you know, standardized framework so that everyone knows what's going on. Uh, and that's been kind of like this, you know, this is a years long process and we're not really seeing widespread adoption just yet. So, okay. Thanks for that, Nick and, and Nate. Um, how about we call in uh, data if you'd like to, uh, to ask your question or, or make a comment. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I'm Dikayo. I run the DataFem podcast. I'm a crypto trader enthusiast myself. Um, and I have worked. Thanks for joining. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, I just wonder, I know that y'all have a conference coming up in April in Austin. <laughs> and I'm curious, I guess, how, you know, in-person events might help to demystify all of you know this just you know like it's easy to be it's easy to be mystified when everything happens online and i'm wondering if that's the part of the goal of your conference 
Oh, well, I, I think I can probably take that one best. Um, thank you for asking that question. We, we're actually, you know, excited about putting consensus on again next year. It was a big deal uh, this past year. It was the first time after COVID and we took it to Austin and converted what had been more of a tra- traditional kind of in-hotel conference into something that's more of a festival. Um, look, Al, I just say, look, I think you're absolutely right. I do, I, we do think there's real value in having people meet and put face to face, you start to get connections with human beings and understand that underneath all of this sort of stuff, there are just real human beings doing real things. And I think that is one of the great values of, of any conference for that matter. But I think particularly because of the very online and sometimes opaque nature of what we're all up to across so many different stakeholders uh, with so many different interests and competing interests that actually having them all in the same room um, and being able to put a name and a face to who you're talking to, I think is extremely valuable. So we certainly encourage people, and this wasn't a planted question, everybody, but I'm going to remind everyone that there is a discount code that we're actually attaching to the speaker spaces for anybody who wants to sign up for consensus. Truth 15 is the discount code. Um, look, just one other quick point. I mean, consensus is, we call it the big tent event. Um, it's it's because, you know, we're not a Bitcoin maxi event. We're not um, a, an event for developers. We're not an event for regulators. We're not an event for investors. Uh, we're an event for everybody, right? For creators, for people doing all sorts of cool things with DAOs, everything. It is the full, and, and obviously this is not something that is easy to pull off because that's a multi-audience thing, but we think it's extremely valuable for all of these competing different uh, open source development communities and projects to every every year come together and just like figure out what the hell's going on uh, and then kind of course correct and go on with things. And so, you know, consensus is a great opportunity for the community to take stock of everything, to sort of like talk through these sorts of really difficult questions and figure out, okay, what do we need to do to make the industry stronger and better and, and move forward? So just, just to, I know that sounds like a plug because it is, but uh, I'm very glad I'm that you asked planted. that. I'm not planted. I may be looking for a press pass, but that I'm not planted. <laughs> okay. um, I've just been at a lot of, I'm, I've been at a lot of data science conferences Um lately and i just know that sometimes conversations happen in an unstructured way that actually provide you know a lot of i guess insight for Mm -hmm. people who might have never met otherwise who have a lot of stake in the industry you know Oh yeah, hundred percent. As as somebody who's been in media for a long time, the chance to actually ask a question without the PR flack being the actual intermediator between that, we see this sort of stuff as gold, right? So yes, you're absolutely right. The unstructured element of it, I think, brings out a transparency that's not there, and also just like surprising insights that wouldn't have, otherwise have. Anyway, let's move on here. Um, uh, Jose Rodrigo from from Benzinga, thanks for putting up your hand to ask a question. We've only got five minutes left, so if you can just be succinct, that'd be great. Yeah, hey, Jose is here. Uh, so congratulations on CoinDesk Ding for breaking the news. And I would like to ask, can we extract something positive from all this as a community? What can we learn, in your opinion? Well, I'm gonna, I'll say something quick. I don't know if anybody else want to jump in after me, but I just, I just think that at the end of the day, um, you know, we can all uh, uh, have a variety of opinions about what sort of regulation needs to be in place. Um, but you know, CoinDesk does not pick any uh, any winners. We don't have any support for for any particular type of technology, any particular company. But I think that you know, collectively, we, we want this technology, this industry to develop whatever way direction that is that's in the broad public interest. And so, look, anything that shines light on um, 
problematic behavior, problematic structures, and, and sort of asks serious questions about how it, it, it could be better addressed is ultimately for the strength of the industry. Um, and so I think that the, you know, the community can see that we can sort of talk sensibly, hopefully, and intelligently about the various alternatives. What, what um, you know, ZZ is suggesting, you know, Merkle tree reserves as being a solution for how exchanges should be more transparent. And we can discuss whether that's a good idea or not, right? But th there's, there's all sorts of ideas that will come out of this problem as to how to solve, this, solve these issues. And, and moving that forward, I think, is is ultimately in everybody's interest, as, as painful as the process is. Um, I don't know, uh, anybody else, Tracy, Brad, anyone else want to jump in and, and, and give your thoughts? Yeah, I'll jump in. I think in hindsight, everybody in the industry, uh, I, I don't want to say everybody, but it was pretty clear for a really long time that the relationship between FTX and Alameda was sketchy. And people knew about it. People didn't really press Sam. He was, you know, doing all these, he had headlines written about him where he was the JP Morgan of crypto bailing people out, puff, puff pieces that he was buying this, he was buying that. And I think, you know, in hindsight, that relationship should have been probed harder earlier on. And it was something that a lot of people in the industry knew about. Everybody just accepted that, you know, yeah, oh yeah, they're, you know, there are separate entities. And in hindsight, I think that was a mistake. All righty. Listen, I think we're down to just a couple of minutes. So um, I might wrap it there if that's okay with everyone, unless anyone from the CoinDesk team wants to, to close out with a quick comment. More to come. Yes, more to come. And that's basically the message here, guys. Just keep, uh, keep, keep, you know, thank you for your support. Thank you for joining this uh, rich conversation. I wish we, you know, we could have gone on for ages. And I'm sorry that for, for those of you who had your hand up and wanted to ask some questions, uh, sorry, we couldn't get to you. Um, look, there is... There is more to come, as as Tracy said. You know, there's this huge hole that needs to be filled. That means there are shoes to drop. Take a look at uh, Ian's story that ran this morning on CoinDesk about Binance and and whether or not it may in fact pull out of this this deal pretty soon. Um, there's lots of different moving parts here, so uh, please keep listening to, to CoinDesk uh, TV podcast, and obviously uh, you know coming to our website and uh, reading our stories from people like Ian and, and Nick and Brad and Tracy. Thank you all for your support. We'll sign off from now um, until next time. Okay, bye for now. This country was built on a distinctly American work ethic, but today work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries. And with that, we sent away good jobs and diminished our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make a variety of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more. All made right here in the USA, from growing the cotton and adding the final touches. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs for seamsters, cutters, and factory workers in towns and cities across the United States. And it's about more than an income. Jobs bring pride purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20.